Welcome to Animal Health Insights. This podcast was created to connect producers, veterinarians, and animal owners, and to introduce you to the people and the organizations who are working to support animal health in Canada. Our podcast is developed with the support of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Todd. Let's get started. There are a number of health challenges that are prevalent in pig production, and we know that biosecurity is the name of the game when it comes to disease prevention. Sometimes, though, there's diseases that seem to evade even the strongest biosecurity plans, and this can be super frustrating for producers and their veterinarians as they try to achieve optimum care for their herds. Porcine respiratory and reproductive syndrome is a disease that has circulated in the swine world for years. However, a recent highly pathogenic strain of this virus is challenging pig herds. Dr. Doug McDougald, a swine veterinarian working out of Southwest Ontario Veterinary Services, has worked with producers in North America who have experienced outbreaks of this highly pathogenic PERS strain, 1441C, and shares some case studies and some practical tips for disease prevention with us today on Animal Health Insights. Thanks for joining me, Dr. McDougald. Nice to be here. Thank you for the invite. So let's start with a brief overview of PERS. Can you explain a bit about how this virus usually affects commercial swine herds? Certainly. And a little history uh, before. This PERS virus showed up now over three decades ago, very early 90s. And at that point, we didn't know what it was. And indeed, the first name was mystery swine disease. And it's evolved with a highly mutating virus uh, over the 35 years. And PERS is not PERS. Uh, There's many different strains, so it can be from uh, mild to no observable signs with some strains to very severe with others. So the moderate to severe signs in sow herds are sows off feed, abortions, in some cases, sow mortality that can be significant. Uh, weak newborn piglets, increased preween mortality, uh, viral pneumonias, respiratory disease, with increased stillborns and increased mummified pigs. All of it strain dependent and herd dependent on severity. In the nursery and finisher pigs, it's off feed pigs, uh, fading pigs, respiratory signs with uh, viral pneumonia, and with corresponding mortality and and poor doing pigs and culls. But again, that's strain dependent, system dependent, and in some cases, there's no clinical signs. Would the clinical signs be any different if you're dealing with a small number of pigs, for example, a backyard or a smaller scale pig farm? Yes, often it will be. Uh, And and that's just population pressure. Uh, So small populations, whether commercial, backyard, small scale, Uh, It can be more easily missed. And indeed, that's part of some of the communication with backyard small-scale pig farms with our foreign animal disease preparedness driven by uh, ASF is communication to backyard on observations and uh, raising a flag if there's any suspicious clinical signs. And just so all our listeners know, Dr. McDougald, PERS is a disease that only affects swine. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, It's a swine-specific disease and is not transmitted to any other species. And how do we diagnose PERS or differentiate it from other causes of similar symptoms, since some of them sound like they can be a little bit vague? Yes, Kate. uh, The diagnosis is straightforward now, and it can range from taking blood samples for antibody measurement with PERS-ELISA serology, 
blood samples for PCR to identify actually the presence of the virus, uh, postmortems with tissues uh, and submission for PCR testing for the presence of virus. And indeed, over the last uh, several years, the development of rope sampling and oral fluids for populations and hanging ropes and the uh, uh, measurement of oral fluids for first virus with PCR testing. So it's, it's straightforward and easy to do. And how does this virus spread from herd to herd? Yeah, great question. And I wish I could give you a black and white answer, uh, but it has eluded us for over 30 years. So the two main ways virus is uh, transmitted is direct through pigs. And that's significant uh, with estimated a million pigs a day uh, being transported in the U.S. alone. Uh, then direct introduction of uh, PERS virus into populations with transportation with direct uh, pig involvement is very real. And it's why sow herds uh, have isolation facilities or should have isolation facilities ahead of moving uh, gills properly tested into the sow herd. The indirect ways would primarily center on transport with contaminated transport or indirect contact through transport to introduce PERS through the transported pigs. People with entrance protocols uh, into the barns, and if uh, we know that if we follow proper biosecurity measures with bench entries, showers, then we remove the risk of people and indeed fomites through supplies by introducing PERS into barns. But that depends on effective protocols and, and uh, compliance. There's facilities. So if a population was positive for PERS virus um, and it's an all in all out and the cleanup is ineffective, then it could potentially carry over from one, one group to another at the facility site. A little footnote on that is we know from lots of experience over time that our effective sanitation protocols are very, very effective in uh, removing that risk, but it's still a risk. With uh, especially the focus on feed transmission that really came to light with PD, porcine epidemic diarrhea, transmission through North America, and the knowledge that was gained by the investigation of that, then we know that feed is a potential vector for PERS. And so that's on the list now. And lastly, and importantly, is aerosol, where uh, it spreads from one site to another through aerosolization. And we know that's frequent and PERS virus can consistently travel several kilometers through the air. And uh, that is also strain dependent. Some of the work on as Dr. Scott D. did at University of Minnesota years ago, used the 184 strain that was known to be more highly transmissible by aerosolization. So that's a more strain-dependent mode of higher-risk transmission. This sounds like a really frustrating disease to try and, and manage already. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the potential impacts of this disease on a herd. Certainly, Kate. I did reference that we have many different strains of PERS um, with some inapparent. Uh, we don't even know it's circulating a herd to ones that are very severe, highly virulent, and devastating. And that's both sow herds and nursery finishers. 
if it breaks in a naive population that has never seen PERS before, then it's often with a moderate severe strain, obvious with the clinical signs I've already referenced. That peaks, it spreads through the herd and works at stabilizing where, you know, the animals primarily have been exposed, they're immune, it circulates, but it continues to circulate in, in those herds. And, you know, the impact is, again, very herd dependent and strain dependent on what the ongoing impact of circulating PERS virus has in both sow barns and in uh, growing herds. Some herds, many herds actually uh, choose to live with low-level circulating PERS because of the challenges of eliminating it, the risk of new breaks, and the judgment and the measure that the ongoing cost of circulating PERS is not as much as the cost of eliminating and the risk of new breaks that can be devastating. How are the strains different? How do we name these different strains and why do we want to know the strain when we're dealing with uh, an outbreak of PERS or a PERS infection? Well, they're all labeled with 144s or 184s and that's the RFLP designation, which is an acronym. And that refers to a screening tool that detects change in virus uh, over time in one section of the virus. So it gives us an initial label or designation. However, there can be subvariants within those viruses that are only detected through full genome sequencing. And we routinely will do full genome sequencing and compare the same virus over time as it continues to mutate, really in, in order to assess the genetic change to the changes in clinical signs and to compare notes and it really investigate biosecurity, investigation, disease spread by viruses that are very close to each other. So we use the RFLP as a initial label and then complete sequencing to get more complete information on the specific strain types. Perfect. Thanks for clarifying that. So I know there is a relatively new strain, 1441C. When did this strain start to become an issue and how did it present initially on farms? Yes, so 1441C, uh, uh, at first the 144 strain has been around in North America for over 15 years, but the specific 144 highly virulent uh, strain started to show up in upper Midwest U.S. in late 2020 and spread rapidly from then with significant impact. It was a highly virulent strain impacting sow herds and growing pigs. And it was dominant enough that it raised a flag within the industry and within our veterinary profession on a, a new emerging highly virulent strain that uh, was spreading quickly. So it's relatively recent uh, and, and since then, it has spread really throughout the U.S. industry. And fortunately for us in Canada, this particular strain has not been identified Canada to date. Could you tell us a bit about how it would show up in a sow barn, for example, versus a grower finisher barn? 
First, my experience with uh, 144, I'm, I'm a veterinarian based out of Canada and working with uh, a client uh, that has Canadian production, sow herds, and owns and or manages about 750,000 pigs a year in the Midwest U.S., uh, and that's owned or managed for other producers with sow herds primarily in Canada uh, with pigs transported to the Midwest, but also some American-based sow herds as well. And so with that, I don't have direct experience with 144 and sow herds, thankfully, but I know from talking to my colleagues that it has been a very virulent strain. And there's others that are probably as virulent, but this one is very virulent with significant impact on uh, sow mortality, abortions, and piglet mortality with reports of uh, piglet mortality through the height of the viremic stage of close to 100% before it stabilizes. So dramatic impact. In the nursery finishers, I have lots of hands-on with, with uh, 144. And just to put this into context, so this client with their owned and managed production uh, have shifted over many years to production almost entirely in South Dakota, which is much less pig dense than Iowa, where we operated before. And that allowed this company to primarily manage pigs with a raise without antibiotic contract. So disease control and disease prevention is absolutely essential for managing a raise without antibiotic production system. South Dakota has performed very well with that. Uh, very good biosecurity protocols, but less population pig density, thus removing the pressure of uh, lateral disease transmission, including aerosolization of PERS. This uh, client has over 150 sites in South Dakota, 110 finishers and over 40 nurseries. And to put this into perspective, in the 2020-21 transmission season, so that would be fall of 2020 to spring of 2021, when 144 was just starting to emerge in the upper Midwest, we had three PERS cases. So three finisher sites broke with PERS, uh, which was about normal for, you know, in the past, really low, low prevalence. Fast forward a year later, fall of 2021 to spring of 2022, 25 cases. And 22 of those were the 144 strain. So a dramatic change in prevalence of PERS in a previous area where there was low to almost no PERS pressure. And the emergence of the 144 strain that was spreading through uh, the Midwest. And those clinical signs were obvious and significant uh, with, again, pigs off feed, fading, respiratory signs with more increase in mortality and culse. Within a raise without antibiotic system, we are driven by animal care and animal welfare first and always. So if there was, there's a need to uh, intervene with antibiotic therapy, we do. So there's not an issue with lack of response to the impact that the virus had. I'll get to the current situation, but we know from looking at those 25 cases, which for the six-month high-risk season was about 20% of our finisher sites impacted. And the cost compared to their cohort of negative finishers 
was about $8 US per pig. And that was because of impact of mortality, some increase in treat rates, certainly fee conversion, shipping weights and call rates all added up to a $8 cost. So for those 25 groups, the impact was over $500,000 last year. So dramatic, eight. The situation this year is even more dramatic. And we knew going into, oh, uh, I'll back up a little bit. So our 25 sites that broke with PERS virus, almost all of them 144, by the time we closed them all out through the summertime, we went into this fall with 100% of sites PERS negative. And running a razor with an antibiotic system, this, this company has very, very good biosecurity measures, great protocols on transport, people, fomites, facility cleanup, feed mill audits. Uh, and uh, in spite of all of that, then starting in October of this year, we started to have PERS breaks in, in primarily finisher sites. And to date, we're up to 32 sites. So it is remarkably ahead of last year's prevalence uh, and having a devastating impact on health and performance with uh, now over 30 cases and we're just into January. So we've got many months of high-risk transmission season ahead of us uh, with, with this. And it's disproportionately 144 strain. So very concerning. And interestingly, we've reached out to the production veterinarians and ours, ours is not the only story with this in, in this region. Hers that haven't seen PERS in 15 years now are positive. There's feral finish herds that are now positive for PERS and primarily 144. And uh, so there's, there's just simply more of this virus circulating within this entire region than ever before. This really sounds like a pretty challenging situation. How have these producers then adjusted their herd health and their biosecurity plans since these outbreaks to try and mitigate this increased transmission, this increased impact of PERS? Very good question. And, and this has just been so frustrating for us trying to deal with this, Kate, because as I've already referenced, running a race without antibiotic system of close to 750,000 pigs a year, we have to have very, very good biosecurity or it doesn't work. And historically, have been very successful with this. So there, there hasn't been any primary big changes in our biosecurity to face or respond to this PERS challenge because we've already had that in place. And we've got enough cases here, both last year and this year, to be able to do you know, a good epidemiological analysis of the breaks. And it's interesting, we cannot find any commonality of factors with these breaks. Thus, feed mills, we do feed mill audits, and there's no correlation to feed mills. Thus, it's unlikely it's directly feed related. Our facility cleanups have been 100% effective, as shown by coming into this fall with all PERS negative pigs. We've got excellent bench entries, shower in, shower outs, foam white control with supplies in and out, highly effective transport with transport audits uh, that really got fine-tuned through PD through 2014 to date. So high confidence in our transport. 
We know that the direct transmission of PER through pigs is a non-factor because all the sow herds are negative. And we've got primary zones within our grouping of herds that is the common factor. So we've got clusters of regions where there's significantly higher transmission of virus, and some of that will be aerosolization. And indeed, the majority may be aerosolization, but as you know, we can't always prove that other than ruling out other biosecurity or transmission factors. So it's very, very frustrating to be looking at this situation within a system that has very, very good biosecurity. We're frustrated. I can hear that in your voice. Is there um, a role then maybe for vaccination to help to prevent this new strain development? Yes, you bet. Um, So uh, some history way back when we first started to uh, raise pigs in the Midwest, and this is many, many years ago, we, we were not vaccinating for PERS. And this was, these are pigs going into Northwest Iowa, which was very pig dense at the time. And we're not measuring or identifying a need to PERS vaccine. Over time, as PERS strains and prevalence and indeed, pig density increased in, in uh, Iowa. We had more PERS virus challenges in growing pigs. Clearly, it was costing us in health. And so we implemented a vaccine uh, protocol, as many did in the industry in the past. And implementing a PERS vaccine strategy in the nursery for protecting pigs, especially through the primary growing phase, worked very well in our cases of clinical challenge went to very, very low uh, levels. In South Dakota, uh, with essentially very low PERS pressure, we have not been vaccinating. But with this now, we are, and those, the the sites within the clusters that are driving the cases now comprise about 50% of the total sites. So 50% of the, the other sites are not appearing to be at risk. So pigs being placed in those higher risk zones, uh, we started to vaccinate in the nursery. And we know that based on work that Dr. Scott D and, and Pipestone Applied Research did with the emerging of 144, that vaccines will help mitigate the impact. It will not negate the impact, but it will help mitigate the impact. And we'll be able to measure that with our negative unvaccinated groups, our unvaccinated groups that have gone positive, and our vaccinated groups that have gone positive. And if we have enough cases, uh, hopefully we don't, but I'm not particularly optimistic on that, then we'll be able to, by the end of this this, uh, year, we'll be able to have some very good comparative and objective data on being able to measure those outcomes and help develop our strategy for next year. What have been the biggest difficulties in managing this new strain for you as a veterinarian? The challenge has been just trying to investigate why it's happening. Uh, Do we have any gaps that we need to identify? Really the speed of the transmission and the impact it's having on a cost and not just a financial cost, but our our staff that do the day-to-day work end up with they they have to do the day-to-day work and going in and treating sick pigs and pulling pigs and on an ongoing basis is absolutely draining for people and uh you know i just applaud the 
the work that our service providers and our our caregivers uh, on a day-to-day basis do to look after pigs that are getting sick like this. So the difficulties have been, why is it happening? What can we do to mitigate the impact? What can we do to prevent it? And and how to help the people that are doing the day-to-day work and the impact that has on them. For sure. There's such a real emotional toll that that can take. Absolutely. What suggestions would you have for Canadian swine producers and Canadian swine vets then to help prevent this strain occurring in Canadian herds? Is it is it even possible? That's a great question. And, you know, thankfully, we have not identified this 1441C in Canada. And certainly, we don't want it uh, from, from just what I've described here. It uh, is a strain that, if at all possible, we need as a Canadian industry to keep it out. And there'd be two main areas of focus. And the first is transportation, pig transportation. So we transport approximately 100,000 pigs a week across the border to the U.S., both growing pigs and, and cull sows. And so returning transport has to be always a primary area of focus. And indeed, through the PD challenge in the U.S., and, and I was one of the veterinarians involved in really focusing on how to prevent PD from coming into Canada. And the work that was done and is being done with transportation companies coming back and producers that are involved in those, plus the cull sow companies that are involved on a daily basis of cull sow movement to the U.S., all are doing a good job on that. And as an industry, we just simply need to continue to focus on the day-to-day to ensure good biosecure measures that are effective on transport are being done because a single mistake would have potentially devastating impact on, on our industry. The other area of focus, and, and I've re- referenced that already, Kate, is, is feed. And we know now that herd virus can be transmitted through feed. So imported feedstuffs like soybean meal with the control measures that are recommended and and should be in place for most or all on uh, ensuring source, biosecurity of the source, transportation of the product, and storage and wait times before use that is all put in place for PED will help mitigate the risk of of PERS. Those be the two primary areas of focus for me uh, on looking at keeping Canada free of 144. The third one, which is pigs direct. There are very few pigs actually coming into uh, Canada from the U.S. That's primarily breeding stock, and they are very effectively managed and, and, and tested. So it's, it's a, essentially a negligible risk. Some of these methods you're mentioning sound very similar to some of the ways that we're trying to prevent other foreign animal diseases from coming into Canada. Are there any things that you've learned in managing these new per strain outbreaks that might be helpful for prevention of other diseases such as ASF? ASF and foreign animal disease preparedness has been such a challenging thing to put in place for our industry. Uh, And the really good news about ASF threat worldwide is that you know, for the first time ever, we've got real traction on foreign animal disease preparedness, prevention, and response. So it's I'm so much more comforted on that if 
that actually happens. Those measures, in my opinion, do not help PERS or other primary production uh, health issues like PD, circovirus disease, indeed influenza, uh, and, and PERS. That's up to us as an industry to manage. And we clearly, in the 30 years of PERS continuing to emerge and mutate, uh, we continue to lose the battles and indeed are losing the war. Our current measures and the past measures of trying to contain PERS, track it, do regional elimination, control movement of pigs have essentially all failed. And with the emergence of the 144 that we're talking about, seemingly highly transmissible and virulent, it just reinforces that the measures that we have tried to do on controlling and mitigating PERS impact have failed. The two areas that I see, or I would hope we would have some future possibilities would be on, well, we already know that you know, PIC with their patented CRISPR technology creating a PERS-resistant pig is real. And if that can actually develop with FDA approval and consumer acceptance and the development of that type of uh, gene editing, CRISPR technology to, for a PERS-resistant pig, then it would be a phenomenal success to be determined on what kind of path that, that, that actually takes. You know, the second, hopefully, uh, area is vaccines. And to date, we have not particularly effective vaccines. They can help mitigate the impact, but don't prevent infection, really don't help, in my opinion, that much on transmission. And I would encourage industry and vaccine companies and and leaders of the industry with the new technology and knowledge gained by messenger RNA vaccines and other vaccine technologies to do a international collaborative approach to the development of a highly effective PERS vaccine. I don't know if that's possible, but we need to absolutely explore that uh, on a international basis. Thanks. That gives us, I think, some good points of, of hope and a little bit of direction here. Thanks so much, Dr. McDougald, for sharing these case studies with us and this information. Hopefully it'll be helpful for Canadian vets and swine producers to further strengthen their own biosecurity and biocontainment plans. We'll share some links to more information regarding PERS and swine health and disease surveillance on our website and podcast page at cas.ca. Thanks for joining us. The Animal Health Insights Podcast is a production of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. CAS is a division of Animal Health Canada, and it has broad-based support from livestock sectors and government. CAS brings together data and information from across Canada in order to demonstrate animal health and to guide planning on national animal health priorities. Effective disease surveillance can demonstrate the health of our animals, and it enables prompt action to minimize the negative impacts of disease. Funding is provided through the Agri-Assurance Program under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal-provincial territorial initiative.